Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome, everyone, to episode 63 of the Highly Relevant Podcast, a pop culture show where we interview the journalists and the newsmakers about how they view and are shaping the most highly relevant entertainment stories of the week. I'm your host, Jack Rico, and if this is your first time listening to our show, thank you for listening. It really means a lot to me to have your ear. Well, now that I have you here, uh, we're discussing the Oscar nominations this week with my good friend Wilson Morales from BlackFilm.com. Uh, We will get to the deeper meaning of how these nominations are influencing our society and, of course, do some predictions on who will win. Also, the New York Times wrote an article this week called, After Oscar So White, Hispanics Seek Their Hollywood Moment. It makes the point that Hispanic actors are in dire need for some needed on-screen inclusion in Hollywood. And so I talked to Brooks Barnes, the media and entertainment reporter who wrote the article, about what led him to write the piece and what solutions he can impart on us after one year of working on it. And finally, the 60th Annual Grammy Awards are this Sunday the 28th, and Matt Fish, a hip-hop connoisseur, will help me make sense of how hip-hop and Latino music own 2017, and what it will mean for the mainstream music industry if the mostly Spanish-language song Despacito wins record or song of the year. That, plus music suggestions for your playlist and the latest news in U.S. Latino and mainstream pop culture. Keep your headphones on. This is the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'm John Bailey, governor of the Cinematographers Branch and president of the Motion Picture Academy. This has been a remarkable year for the movies. Actors, writers, producers, and directors have given us films that not only entertain, but challenge us. There's been bold, adventurous work in animation, documentaries, and foreign language films. Visual effects, composers, and sound artists, production designers, editors, and cinematographers continue to raise the bar of their crafts, as do costumers, makeup, and hair artists. This is a landmark year to honor their achievements. I want to welcome in now Wilson Morales, editor-in-chief of BlackFilm.com. Wilson, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, it's good to be on. All right, so the Oscar nominations came out this week. Uh, A lot to talk about, a lot to unpack and unspool here. Um, But I do have to say, it has to be a great time to be covering black pop culture right now. I mean, Get Out got a Best Picture nomination. Black Lightning is like the hot new show on TV. Uh, the whole Grammy record of the year category that's happening at the Grammys this Sunday here in New York City is ethnic, right? Um, 
it's like the first time that a Caucasian artist actually wasn't even included in the record of the year. Um, tell me what it's like covering culture right now for you, uh, for blackfilm.com. Well, yesterday's Oscar nominations played out very well. You know, we got uh, a lot of good nominees. We had 13 nominations for Black individuals. You know, last year we had 18, so it's not so much of a drop. Um, obviously, things are playing well on TV with the Chai, uh, Black Lightning. You've got a new show coming up on Netflix called Seven Seconds. You know, the amount of people that got nominations for the Grammys also played well. So I guess as a journalist, there's a lot of good work to be covered. Right. Now, you, as a journalist, you've been covering some really good work recently on BlackFilm.com. Black Panther, you just did a set visit. Well, we were invited last year sometime around, I guess, January, almost a year ago, to go on the set of Black Panther, which is highly which is one of the highly anticipated films of the year. And um, we saw a number of things being, we saw actually a scene being shot and they pretty much brought in a good portion of the main cast. We talking about the film at the time, you know, they couldn't say much because they were just in the middle of shooting. Uh, but there was a lot to be discovered in terms of what they saw on the set, the costumes, the production design, you know, we're only less than a month away from the film was being released in theaters. And I think, you know, the audience is just going to go nuts from what they see. You know, Disney and Marvel have done a good job as far as putting out the trailers and clips, but also holding back on a lot so that the audience could uh, be uh, desired to see it. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about the Oscars. Uh, diversity and inclusion mostly, which is after the hashtag Oscar. So why do everybody just seems to have like a magnifying glass to try and, you know, get somebody from the Oscar committee who didn't vote for a diverse person in a particular category. Us Hispanics, <laughs> what can we expect? It's predictable. There's like not one single Latina was nominated in the acting category, but that's a whole different conversation. Should be celebrated, though, that uh, African-Americans are all over the Oscars uh, this, this particular year. Well, here's the thing I always felt. It's not so much about... Oscar so white, you know, and I don't want to keep bringing that up every year. I think it's all about opportunity. If you give the right person, the right film, the right project, the same amount of marketability, like they, like you know, I guess if you're saying uh, they're white counterparts, you know, uh, and you expose those films to the right people so that they can see it, then they'll be in contention. I'm free, you know. We, we throw the word snub very much when people don't get in. And somebody said sometimes it's like it's not about snub is that they don't get the votes. So now we have to go ask ourselves why they didn't. Why is it they didn't get the votes? This particular year, we got the votes. Yes, got, Get Out got in. Mary J. Blige got in. Uh, um, you know, I don't think from, I guess, for somebody who, like me who covers uh, film, in particular the Black uh, aspect of it, you know, it wasn't so much of someone who did not get it. You can make a case for Tiffany Haddish, but I'm not going to complain when we got Mary J. Blige and as well as Octavia Spencer. Right. You know, so, so Get Out got four Oscars. Uh, Jordan Peele in particular. Man, th th this dude is like on some Lin-Manuel Miranda type of thing where it it's just surreal, like the level of success that he's going through. First time director, debut film, Get Out, and gets four Oscars. He gets an Oscar for producer, which is the best picture of the year, best director, and best uh, original screenplay. Yes, that's, he's one. That's crazy. That's, that's he's one of the few, uh, few people, not just black, few people who've gotten that amount of nominations in one year. 
You know, so that's you know that's amazing for one guy on his first film. Right. You know, so he's got a he's got a tough task when he comes up to his next film. Now, now one of the things that I particularly just I just didn't see and I disagree with it is that in the best acting category or best actor category, Daniel Kaluuya, the star of Get Out, was nominated. I got to be honest with you, man. I, I I've seen some great acting. All the way from Daniel Day Lewis's My Left Foot to Robert De Niro's Taxi Driver and Awakenings uh, to Robin Williams' Goodwill Hunting performance, I cannot put Daniel Kaluuya on the top of the best actors in Hollywood this year. I, I just can't. I appreciate the movie, but I didn't think that his acting carried the whole thing. I mean, yes, what's mostly shown in mainstream commercials and media is the sunken place and his eyes. That was a very physicality. But his performance, but you, his acting, I just didn't feel was memorable. You're in a minority. You know, you're in a minority. You know, you can go over every Oscar year in which there was one individual that probably shouldn't have got in there. You know, and, and especially, you know, here's a case where, like, hey, he got in because of the marketability. You know, the inclusion, you know, his SAG nomination, that speaks a lot, you know, especially when we're talking about, like, you got to get him out there, you got to get him out there. You know, so, like, there have been performances that have been subpar, but because the person is a name, is a name, is well-known, they get in. You know, at the end of the day, you know, Meryl Streep got her, I think, 21st or 22nd nomination, and one can go back and say, okay, does she really deserve all 22 nominations? You know, right. uh, and start nitpicking. So, like, I'm not going to complain about Daniel Kaluuya. You know, he, he's not so much the front burner as Gary Oldman is. You know, the fact that right, he's but you could have given that 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 to someone else that probably was more deserving of it. You know, another <laughs> well, one was Denzel Washington. You know, well, you, we on this podcast, you and I spoke. You had just seen Roman J. Israel Esquire. Uh, up in the Toronto Film Festival, and you told me that movie wasn't very good. The movie wasn't good, but his performance was, and I think he got in because the SAG people and actually the Oscar voters, who are basically a good portion of the SAG individuals, voted for his performance as opposed to the film. And at the same time, James Franco, who many believe would have gotten a nomination, somehow declined once those allegations came up against him. Uh, let's look at Best Director, because I know that this is something that a lot of people are very happy about. We have a Hispanic and uh, Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, uh, Lady Bird with Greta Gerwig, uh, female. I think that's the first time since Catherine Bigelow, probably, uh, that there's been a female director nominated. Jordan Peele, obviously African-American. And finally, Christopher Nolan gets his uh, first director uh, <laughs> nomination and Paul Thomas Anderson for Th Phantom Thread, which is interesting because uh, that movie wasn't really touted as special during the award season until... The Oscars decided to say, you know what, we're going to kind of uh, buck that trend and we're going to nominate because we feel it's special. Yeah, you know, that was more like a, a Johnny come lately and uh, they made an impact, I guess, to a lot of people. And I think also with the rest of the nominees, this is a year where I think part of social media in a way had something to do with Jordan and Greta getting in. Uh, both of them have equally good films, but, you know, there's always, you know, you always have a good solid seven to nine directors and you know some either got in because of politics and some got in because their films are good are you upset that d reese director of mudbound wasn't nominated nor was the film no um you know netflix has always had that challenge of trying to convince people that like they're they're at the studio but there's those who find it their their, their way of 
putting out films, you know, day in and you also can see it online, takes away from the actual film business per se, you know, but, you know, they did break ground in getting four nominations in the top categories as far as supporting actress, adapted screenplay, that they got the first female cinematographer ever nominated. Rachel Morrison. So should, yeah, so they should take comfort that they at least got named in some of those areas. It's almost the same way when HBO first started coming in, they wouldn't let the cable companies uh, <laughs> compete with the Emmys, but eventually they look where they are now. Uh, what do you think overall about the work in diversity and inclusion that the Academy has done this year? Are you pleased or do you think more could have been done? I think there's a lot of work there. And I think it's a matter of marketing. I think there's always plenty, you know, from the, speaking from, a, I guess, the black perspective, the work is there. Maybe we could say we need more in terms of leading females. Uh, more what would make you happy, films. Wilson? Let me ask you this, because I think you also speak for, for the industry of African-Americans who want to see more. Like, what would you need to see uh, on, on the Oscar nomination list? Does it need to be almost all black? No. It's not about being, it's not about color. If the, if the product is good, just get them promoted. And I don't want, I don't want the race to be mixed. You know, it shouldn't be that way. It should be about the, the work itself. If the work is good, you know, then it should get in it. You know, getting in is one thing. Winning is another thing. You know, so sometimes it's all about getting invited to the dance. And it's a matter of just having the right product to get invited to the dance. You know, the people decide afterwards. So it's not so much about, you know, I don't want to see this person get in or get if if their product is good, get them in. Finally, uh, before I let you go, Wilson, quick question. Best picture. We got nine this year. And uh, I don't remember the last time we got nine, but it's call me by your name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Get Out, Ladybird, Phantom Thread, The Post, Shape of Water, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Who wins it? Three billboards. Why? I think it's a film overall that you know you can you start thinking about what can you can watch at home. If you have, if I personally had to say which one you're comfortable with, three billboards. You know, I know there's been some talk, backlash, and so forth, but all of these films are going to get that sort of talk. You know, Dunkirk is more of a technical film. Um, Shape of Water. Shape of Water is a fantasy romantic film. You know, you know that's that's genre specific in a way. So it all depends what you're. What about Ladybird? Ladybird, you know, I I wasn't that crazy over Ladybird as others have been. It's a decent film. I think it's one of the best films of the year, and I think it has a, a great shot in winning the whole thing. Out politics outside of it, I saw Three Billboards too. I've seen all of these movies except Phantom Thread. Uh, Call Me By Your Name, I thought it was a good film, you know, well acted, I thought it had some very poignant, you know, human moments. Darkest Hour, I thought it was more about the performance of Gary Oldman. Dunkirk, I just disliked almost at every level. Get Out, I thought was the highlight of the year and an important film for this year. Um, Lady Bird, it was pure joy. That, that that's all I that's the only way I can describe it. it's pure joy. Phantom Thread I didn't see. The post I thought was underwhelming to me. Um, I thought there's better movies like Spotlight that is a better journalism movie. Shape of Water I truly enjoyed. I thought it was the most well balanced of them all. I thought it needed a punch towards the end. Uh, and Three Billboards, you know, I thought it was. Again, well acted, one of the best ensembles of 2017. I thought that the comedy uh, had a bite to it, so it was in your face. And yes, great movie, but 
I don't know, man. I, I, that, that was a film that you had to kind of like a lot of layers and you didn't exactly know what it was. So Ladybird to me is the one that best sums up sort of the best feeling I had for a movie of 2017. We're just going to have to see what happens come March. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Wilson. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate uh, you coming out. And by the way, why have you been whispering all the whole podcast? I haven't been whispering. I guess it's the tone on uh, how you're hearing me. I don't know. I speak clear <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Wilson. Thanks a lot, buddy. Take it easy. All right. Thank you. It's time for Jacked In. Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. Steven Spielberg is remaking the classic film musical West Side Story and is currently looking for Latino actors. In contrast, the National Hispanic Media Coalition will protest the lack of Latino representation in movies at this year's Oscars. Warner Brothers is planning an animated Dr. Seuss Cat in the Hat. Netflix is in talks to acquire the Cloverfield movie sequel. Anne Hathaway's Barbie movie moves to 2020. Peter Jackson is working on a World War One film documentary premiering in London at the London Film Festival this fall. And movies releasing this week are Maze Runner The Death Cure. Lebanon's foreign film Oscar nominee, The Insult, and Christian Bale's violent western, Hostiles, which opens wide. In TV news, Meryl Streep has been cast in HBO's highly anticipated sequel, Big Little Lies 2, with Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, and Shailene Woodley. CBS is rebooting Murphy Brown with Candace Bergen returning for all 13 episodes. John Malkovich has been cast for the third season of Showtime's Billions as a Russian billionaire. And Natalie Portman will be hosting SNL after more than 10 years on February 3rd. Switching over to music, the Grammys are this Sunday night on CBS in Halsey, Rhapsody, and Kelly Clarkson will wear white roses to show solidarity with the Time's Up movement. Janet Jackson, Mary J. Blige, Miguel are headlining the 2018 Essence Music Festival. Elton John announces retirement from touring. Lin-Manuel Miranda is releasing for the second time this month another Hamill drop. Italian balladeer Laura Pausini releases a new single titled Hasta Sentir, and Drake and reggaetonero Bad Bunny might be collaborating in the future. And in digital and social media news, ESPN is adapting its popular first take show for Facebook. Apple orders drama series from director of La La Land. Movie Pass, the movie theater subscription service, snaps up the art heist film American Animals. Instagram stories can now include GIFs, and Twitter is reportedly working on a video sharing feature that mimics Snapchat. <laughs> Joining me now on the Highly Relevant Podcast is Brooks Barnes. He's a media and entertainment reporter for the New York Times who wrote an article this week called After Oscar So White, Hispanics Seek Their Hollywood Moment. Thanks for being on the podcast, Brooks. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. What inspired you to write this article? You know, it's one that has been, it's been in the works for a very long time, almost a year, actually. Wow. Last, um, uh, not consistently over that time, but last year around the Oscars, um, there were a couple articles on industry blogs um just saying like hey wait a minute um as as everyone was congratulating uh, the academy for um nominating six uh black actors um there were no hispanic uh, nominees and that caught my attention and i then met with a couple of the i set up meetings with a couple of the um activists and I wanted to to write about it um, for a while, but kind of never had the the moment or peg, and so just kept in touch with those folks. And um, finally, we we saw as once again on Tuesday tomorrow morning they are are not going to have any uh, almost assuredly any Hispanic nominees. It seemed like the right Damn moment. It. In the article, you made mention that I believe in the last twenty years. 
uh, uh, three Hispanics have been nominated in the acting category, right? Yeah, and and I mean even more starkly, there's there's never been a Latina Best Actress, um, and that's crazy. You have to go to the, never, and you have to go back to the fifties uh, to find Rita Moreno, uh, probably uh, right in supporting, um, but you have to go back to the fifties to find the Best Actor. So it's really stark. And then when you combine that with some of the research that USC and UCLA have done about just not Oscar related, but characters on screen, it's really, it's, it's, they're the, it's the most underrepresented group by a long shot. Um, 18% of the population over the last, I think it was 10 years in their, in the USC study, only 3% of on-screen characters are Hispanic. That's an that's a enormous disparity. You spoke to Chrissy Halberger. Now, for those of you that might not know who Chrissy Halberger is, she was the founder uh, of Latina Magazine, and she's now um, at CAA uh, in charge of, I, I believe she's the head of uh, multicultural talent at CAA. What were some of the questions? What, what was the interview with her like, and, and what stood out more than anything? What were some of the salient answers that she gave you that was her inclusion um i thought was important because she's worked one of the the leading people working inside the business um and it, it, her her work is not just um in one lane it, it's for minorities across the board um in hollywood and what's what struck me is is how i guess patient she's had to be she talked about how when she founded latina magazine and started going to advertisers, I mean, two decades ago, that they, people, I, I can't remember what the quote was, it wasn't in the story, but they treated her like a, a foreign, you know, an alien from another planet, <laughs> that, something that they'd never seen before. Incredible. And and she kind of felt the same way when she arrived in Hollywood. She's been at CAA for, since uh, 2005. And her point was, um, I'm less interested in, um, you know, cosmetic change like you know in a one moment scenario um you know uh, representation in in one oscar class for example she's working what she describes as from the ground up touching every rung is how she puts it in the business to try to create lasting change right um but there's just a lot of frustration among these people um about sort of why why the broader public doesn't care more and and why the on-screen representation is is just so bad. Right. You actually wrote, uh, and I thought very accurately. Uh, and I'll quote here. I'll quote you here. You said, "quote But the underrepresentation of Latinos, unlike the sidelining of other minority groups, has never truly entered the public conversation." Now, this is very true. And you go on to make two points about it. Can you take us through those points? Well, one point, and these, this comes from the reporting. Um, it's you know the group is is enormous. <laughs> You've got um, it, it, we looked at it in its broadest sense, uh, which you know any anyone coming from a Spanish speaking culture um, that includes anyone from Venezuela to Spain to Puerto Rico. To, you know it, it's it's hard to get everyone to care about the topic because they're all different cultures with different traditions and different mentalities. And I and, you That's know right. kind of to reinforce what you're saying there's barely any commonalities outside of the language between someone from Argentina and someone from Mexico. And so it's right. hard to get an Argentina and a Mexico in the same room, especially when, when it comes to soccer, you know, they're enemies. 
to 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 actually unify themselves in a particular goal or or, or, or objective, which is to get more Hispanics on Hollywood. So it was very interesting what you wrote about that. Uh, well, thanks. I mean, some of the the uh, actresses who have been advocates, America Ferrara, um, for example, have said that ha- they've been frustrated that. Um, Latinos in America have not been more um, supportive in case some cases of of films that represent them, and that is one way to get it, the attention of Hollywood, obviously, um, through through their checkbooks. Um, the other the other thing that I heard that I, I have to believe that there's some truth to is, and this this came most forcefully from um, Alex Nagales, who's president of the National Hispanic Media Coalition. He said, you know, look, we, we have tried to be much more um, consensus building. Let us come in and explain to you while um, other, some other uh, groups um, have been much more aggressive, aggressive. You know, Al Sharpton uh, picketed the Oscars a couple of years ago. Spike Lee. Um, stood in front of the at the Governor Awards, which is the Academy, and, and, and basically, you know, shamed them like, you know, enough is enough. Um, and there hasn't there haven't been similar firebrands, at least in Hollywood, from the Hispanic side, in, in part because of just the whole the whole problem, right? Right. The, no, you you have to have power and stature to begin with. <laughs> right. And, and, and the power and the stature is the fact that 18% of the United States are Hispanics. We're the largest minority. But when it comes to race, Brooks, why do you think that much of the conversation in America is limited to black and white and not Hispanic? That's a really good question. I, I'm not entirely sure. I think that part of it is the there's more of a tradition in Hollywood of um, black filmmaking they tend to it tends to be like on the on the side obviously but it's something that the studios understand um i don't know um you know there is a couple of key issues about why hispanic actors aren't being nominated for for acting awards and 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 these were some of the thoughts that i took away from your article and i started thinking to myself number one in order for a hispanic actor to be nominated they have to be hired in movies right they have to be, to be there right the jobs have to be there too if they're not hired in movies, it's because studios aren't giving them any quality lead roles to get. And so, I mean, you, you know, they say that stars aren't born, that they're made. So right. the question is, why isn't Hollywood making Latino movie stars? What's pre- precluding them from doing that? Well, one is there's a, a lot of pressure on every front to, to manufacture um, openly gay stars and manufacture stars with disabilities. And I, I hear that from studios. I'm not excusing that. I'm just explaining their point of view. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. and um, there's also, th- there are people on the, on the popular movie side, the, the Oscar Isaac in Star Wars or... Who's from Guatemala, and, right? Right, or... You know, when I asked studios, you know, tell me who you're, what you're doing in this, a lot of the focus was in animation. You mentioned Coco earlier. Um, you know, well, we have, you know, three Latino stars in, in um, forgetting what it is, Trans- Hotel Transylvania 3. Right, Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez and, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and so that tells me that studios are focusing on where, on the demographics that, that 
respond to certain movies. Animation in particular um, has a higher support if you look at the demographics from Hispanic ticket buyers. Um, they think it has something to do with with um, a tradition of going to movies as a family. And and so that kind of goes back to the, the point I was making earlier about if, you know, if there's support in the um, at the box office that gets the, the attention of Hollywood and like, oh, oh, geez, we need to <laughs> we need to start focusing more. And that's the only thing they pay attention to money and and I guess right. controversy. You know, and, and I public embarrassment. <laughs> and I right, and I thought that money was gonna was 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 a given, except that we're already the number one movie going demographic in the United States, and we've been like right. that for almost two decades. And so, if so, money isn't so, doing anything, right? Right. So, and one person I spoke with made the point, and and studio executives have said this to me too that well, we're already getting they're they're already over indexing. They represent. I think 18% of the population, but 26% of or 23% of of frequent moviegoers. So we don't need to work harder to get them. We need to work harder on these on these other groups. The, the problem with that is mm-hmm. that if you look deeper at the data, the the number of frequent movie go- Hispanic moviegoers is is going down, down, down. Um, I did years, read that. So. That that was a little shocking to me. Um, any any reasons why what you would attribute that to? I think well, they would say just because it's it's they're not their stories and um, faces are not being seen, um, not being represented, and um, eventually um, the it's it's a not paying attention to a loyal customer, or maybe just fatigue overall of the the. Could the be just the same sort of type of movies, the same type of stories that no longer connect with them today, I guess, in a more diverse world. I, speaking about studio exe- executives, Brooks, uh, before I let you go, I, I know that uh, many of them declined to speak to you, uh, which you said in the article. Any idea why? Well, because they, one, don't want to be, they don't want to put themselves out there to be, um, uh, you know, publicly, it's the Hollywood way. <laughs> no one talked about Harvey Weinstein for three decades. Right. Kudos um, to Thomas Rothman, the chairman of Sony Pictures, who actually yeah, did talk you know to what? him. But the he rest actually didn't. is one of the few that actually will will stand up and and say something. Um, whereas studios, you know, it, it's pretty much business as usual to circle the wagons, um, and um, they all want to know well who who else is talking and. We don't, we don't really play that game. We say you can either comment or not. Right. And then finally, Brooks, what do you think is the solution for increasing Hispanic talent in front of the camera? You did all this research. You've been talking about it for close to a year. Did you come up with any takeaways of, of, of a solution uh, of how we can move forward um, from, from all the reporting and, and all, all the things that you've been hearing for the last year or so? I do think it, it goes to Christy Halberger um, in some way. You have to have uh, people making in hiring the, the, the position to hire people, um, the people uh, at the studios who are thinking about these these faces and not picking from the same group that that they represent or the same pool of this is how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that happens, you start seeing results. Um, Disney has made a very concerted effort from the top of the company yes. um, to, to be more diverse in its movies um, you know, to, the, to the degree that there's pushback on Star Wars and, 
you saw Coco, um, Black Panther is coming up uh, from Marvel, which mm-hmm. is going to be it. And, and so, but that's one studio and, and the others are, are, are because they're in a less, uh, solid business t- position for the most part oh, are okay. less willing to take those chances. Right. Cause there's just more risk for failure, et cetera. Right. Even though when you have a show like Hamilton on Broadway, right. And you have someone like Lynn Manuel Miranda, who's already proven twice that you can have right. multicultural stories win and have the acclaim and the box office success, uh, plus Coco, which I just spoke to Lee Unkrich about, and it's made over $600 million. And that's not including markets that haven't even opened in Ireland, Japan, right. et cetera. Uh, I don't know where they keep on thinking that risk is a problem. And if I may add and, and offer also a solution on my end, you know, when when you look at sort of the whole spectrum, I think a couple of things need to happen. We need to have more people of diversity in the positions of power at these studios. Right. To kind of make because I always felt like people hire what they know, right? Like if I'm comfortable with you getting along with me and we have common like minded um, likes, like. right, right. It, it, they get hired, but when it's too different, too culturally different, there's a particular sense that I want to work with people that kind of get me, right? And so I think we need to have people in positions of power that are diverse to be able to kind of uh, have a better eye for talent. And then secondly, once we have, for example, the Three Amigos, and as much as I love them and the success that they have and what they represent in our community in terms of triumph, uh, they're leading the way for it. If you look at Alejandro González Iñárritu, Guillermo del Toro, uh, and Alfonso Cuaron, the last time they hired, they've made movies, English language movies, but the last time they hired a lead Hispanic actor between both has been between 10 and 20 years. That's a real sore spot. Um, we didn't get into that in the article. But, um, you know, when we talked about you have to be in, it, it takes people in with power to hold, rattle the studio gates. Those three, those three men have, have power, um, those directors. And they're and, not hiring actors uh, uh, who are of Hispanic origin to be in their movies. And I've always scratched my head about that. It's almost like, and I don't want to necessarily assume this, but it seems like it. At least the optics look like they left the Hispanic industry and they're not looking back they're now in in hollywood in america entrenched there in this club and i don't feel that they're necessarily helping the cause right where they could because more than anyone else they understand it so for me if you're a director or a screenwriter uh include roles that are hispanic i mean we we're seeing in comic books how peter parker is now an african-american or an afro-latino in miles davis these are the things that I think that they could do better, you know, between putting position, uh, diverse people in positions of power and the people that are already in power that are Hispanic to kind of throw the ladder and let some of the great talent come in, new talent too, you know. Right. Brooks, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. You're in Utah right now. You're covering Sundance. What are you working on? I am covering Sundance. And it's interesting that the, you know, if this is the, um, what do you call it, the, the, field team I'm, uh, <laughs> that's what i get for making trying to make a sports reference but you, you know what i mean um for for big hollywood right um the then it's pretty promising because there are um you spoke of hamilton uh you know the, the hamilton actors are sprinkled all the way through these these films here there are, there are a lot of it's diversity mm-hmm. um in, in every single 
uh, film almost. Um, and so that's uh, pretty interesting. That is interesting. Brooks, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Appreciate the conversation and good luck out there at Sundance. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Before I talk to my next guest, Matt Fish, about the Grammys, here are three tracks you might want to add to your playlist this weekend. Don't Make Me Wait, Sting featuring Shaggy. Imagine, Mamundi. On the best coast, on the best coast, I day. We don't get those, we don't get those. Do you wanna come zone in the sunshine? Baby, yes, no, baby, yes, no. Sunshine, Kyle featuring Miguel. Matt Fish is a staff writer and Spotify playlist curator at The Hot New Hip Hop, a site dedicated to hip-hop news, and he's also the creator of the Hip Hop Classics podcast, a show where he pays tribute to the greatest hip-hop albums in the form of these mini-audio documentaries. I've had a chance to listen to it. Very cool. Matt, it's great to have you on, man. Oh, my God, Jack, thanks so much. That was quite uh, the audio intro. I could not have said it better myself. Appreciate it, man. Uh, before we talk Grammys this coming Sunday, uh, I want to know how you got into hip-hop, and if you can tell me a little bit about the podcast. I heard the Jay-Z Greatest of All Time discussion. I thought that was my favorite episode so far. Well, I, I guess I'll start with the podcast and work backwards. Uh, I have done many podcasts in my life. When I say many, this is, I think, my fourth podcast in total. I've been a radio professional for the last couple of years as well, and I was looking to talk about the genre of music. I have a huge passion for it. I started as a bar and a club DJ uh, about 10 years ago and just really worked up my appreciation for the genre, especially the classics. And I think that, you know, in the age of SoundCloud rappers and, you know, quality control and the whole trap sound, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, sometimes the classics like the Biggie and the Tupacs and the and the Jay-Zs, as you said, sort of get lost in the shuffle. And I did some research, found that there wasn't really anything celebrating said geniuses of uh, this music genre that we like to call hip-hop or rap music. So I uh, decided to take that upon myself and 24, 25 episodes in. I honestly can't remember how many I've published by the time this will air, but it's somewhere in there and we're having a great time doing it. And, you know, the Jay-Z greatest of all time discussion sprang from the buddy that I had on to talk about it with me, uh, cousin AJ, he and I went to the show uh, up here in Montreal, which is in Canada for uh, anybody listening worldwide on the internet. And it was a great time and it really put his career in the perspective. So it was a really fun conversation. Now you're Canadian, you're from Montreal. How, how does a Montreal guy get into hip hop? You know, Montreal has a really diverse music scene. Uh, there's a lot of different cultures that sort of congregate under the party scene in this city. So you get a little bit of everything. You get a little bit of hip hop and rap, uh, reggaeton, world beat, EDM, <laughs> house music. And I mean, I'm going, I mean, you have specialty DJs in this city as well, but it's not uncommon for you to hop between 
six or seven genres over the course of a bar or a club night. So, you know, wow. it wasn't actually it wasn't actually that hard to get into it, and you bring other people's influences uh, into it as well. And I was always just a music junkie, you know, before becoming a rap and, and hip hop fan to a great degree. I was into a lot of the the, the rock classics as well, so I'm very well versed. And I will say multiple genres of music, and it's just so much fun for me to continue listening and continue discovering and just continuing to spread that passion of music with other people. That's great, man. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Grammys. I know you've been following it, uh, obviously, because your podcast and hip-hop music is very uh, omnipresent in this uh, edition, the 60th edition of the Grammys that's happening this Sunday. So let's start right off the bat, record of the year. Let me just outline the nominees. It's... Childish Gambino with Redbone, Luis Fonsi, Daddy Yankee, featuring Justin Bieber with Despacito. You got Jay-Z and the story of, uh, of OJ for Record of the Year, Kendrick Lamar's Humble, and Bruno Mars' 24K Magic. Now, as I understand it, this is the first time, I believe in history, you could correct me there, that not one white artist is a part of this Record of the Year, which is incredible uh because hip-hop music has been so popular and so extremely consumed and has such had such influence globally i mean montreal is like a great you know uh, example of that who do you think wins this one because everybody here if i if i just close my eyes and i just kind of pick one out of nowhere blindfoldedly uh I, i'm fine with with either i i agree with you i'd be fine with most every song here winning i mean if i'm honest uh Childish Gambino's Redbone is probably on the outside looking in just in terms of uh, the maybe the slightly greater quality of the other four songs here. I mean, look, you were talking about the historic night it's going to be for uh, artists that are, you know, part of identified minority groups in the United States, and certainly hip-hop is a big part of that as well. You know, it was a narrow miss, I think, for this happening the last few years. Taylor Swift's uh, 1989 and Adele's the 25 sort of thrust them into that conversation in other years when hip-hop was really dominant as well. You know, if I had to pick, though, I hate to shy away from the hip-hop artists here. For me, it's a toss-up between Bruno Mars' 24-karat magic and Despacito. With, I would like to say Despacito wins it because of, you know, just earth-shattering, record-breaking numbers that it pulled in in terms of streaming and all that this year, but... I could see it going Bruno's way. He had an amazing year, an amazing tour, and you know that song was everywhere on the radio, streaming in people's uh, minds and you know eardrums for the better part of two years. Mm -hmm. So I really think it's a strong song, and it could it could very well take home a record of the year. Um, interesting, you say that because Jay Z is uh, the most nominated artist of the night with uh, with with eight nominations. Jay Z. According to you and your podcast, he could probably be the greatest of all time. Why isn't this an easy choice for the Grammys to pick him? And and why was he not your preferred choice? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, I'll, I'll use an example from another big award show, the Academy Awards, when Leo DiCaprio won for The Revenant a few years ago, Best Actor, and that was, in many people's estimation, the Oscars sort of giving him this, you know, kind of like career achievement in the form of a Best Actor award, right? right? right. So the way I see it falling Jay-Z's way for 444 for all of the nominations is sort of as a career summation because a lot of people are thinking that 444 could be his swan song. 
you know, it's going to be hard for him to top this record. He's getting close to 50 years old. And yes, in my mind, he could very well be the greatest MC of all time, but that doesn't mean that the story of OJ, that album 444, was the strongest album or the strongest song I heard this year. It doesn't necessarily even put it in the top three in terms of Jay-Z's canon. I just think it took everybody by surprise. It took uh, the world by surprise a little bit in terms of how good it was after Magna Carta sort of really was met with, you know, I would say mostly disappointment when it came out four years ago, uh, or sorry, uh, five years ago. I keep forgetting it's already 2018, Jack. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But anyways, I, I think... Like I said, in terms of a career summation, I can see this going well for Jay-Z, but, you know, I, I have to give respect to stuff like uh, like what Bruno did and Despacito as well. Right, so you know? album of the year, now that we're talking about albums, uh, here are the nominees, Awaken My Love by Childish Gambino, Jay-Z's 444, Kendrick Lamar's Damn, Lord, out of nowhere, <laughs> a part of this uh, hip-hop group, basically, with uh, Melodrama and Bruno Mars with 24K Magic. What do you think is the best album of 2017 you have to sort of remember to separate sort of the best in quality from what could be a bit of a popularity contest when it comes to the grammys and that's usually how it works i will say though i really did love lord melodrama and i did too coming out of nowhere uh, coming out of nowhere a little bit but for me it was one of the more impressive records this year and you know, a, sort of like a childish Gambino, maybe not the same amount of exposure, but if you haven't listened to it, get on uh, Apple Music, Tidal, Spotify, wherever you're using at home, and check out Melodrama. It's great. You know, I actually think Jay Z has a better opportunity to win Album of the Year for 444. Oh, okay. Because as a sum of its parts, I think it was a great narrative and a great sort of moment of remorsefulness for him. And, you know, people were saying, how we sort of confessed to what Beyonce brought up in Sorry uh, with the, her whole Lemonade album of his infidelity in their marriage. And I mean, you know, people are talking about, all oh, this guy and how can he live with himself? Well, he wrote this album and then he went on and toured it. So he's got to get up there and sing a song like Family Feud with 20,000 plus eyes on him every night. And just that sort of narrative in this album. And of course, uh, Smile, the beautiful, beautiful song that he wrote, uh, about his mother and uh, her struggles with coming out, and that's actually being uh, honored by the uh, the GLAD Association, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. in the United States. So, you know, uh, it's a big moment for him, and, you know, if I had to pick between record and album of the year, I think that Jay-Z's 444 could sneak up on people and win that one. So, song of the year is Despacito, uh, yeah. Jay-Z's uh, 444, Issues by Julia Michaels, 1-800-273-8255 by Logic, feature, uh, featuring Alicia Cara and Khalid, and then That's What I Like from Bruno Mars. My, my pick for this one, you know, I love all the songs, but... I, I think this is a hands-down no-brainer. The Grammys has to give it to what Despacito does. Number one, because it went against all odds. No one betted on this song for making it all the way to the number one chart in the Hot 100 and becoming 16 weeks, tying Mariah Carey's record, and then yep. becoming the most streamed song in the history of streaming or in the history of music all along. Uh, what it did is it it, it kind of... It kind of just said, look, look, Spanish language music has arrived and it's in the form of Despacito. And it's a, it's a great song, too. But they're going against Titans here with Jay-Z, Bruno Mars, who performed twice at the Super Bowl. 
uh, and has an amazing uh, fan base. Is Despacito the winner here? I think it could be, but I don't know if it's as clear-cut as potentially uh, some other people might make it out to be. I, I do also like Bruno Mars's That's What I Like in this spot as well. On and Off was at the top 10 of the Hot 100 for 30 to 40 weeks, if I remember correctly. We did a countdown. Never reaching number the, one, though. Uh, never reaching number one, and that's a good point. But in terms of, you know, again, just potential staying power, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know where or how far Despacito fell off once it left its number one perch. But, you know, I'm just sort of trying to paint Despacito having a little bit of competition here. I think it walks away with Song of the Year because, like you said, the records it set, uh, the impact that it made, and it is going to go down in history. Like I Got a Feeling and like something like Uptown Funk, it is going to be one of those all-time right. party anthems when it's all said and done. So I think that the Grammys maybe can't overlook that, but you never know. So let me ask you this, because I think this has a, a much deeper overall impact. If Despacito wins, it's I would say that that song, there's two versions of it. There's the original Spanish language version, and then there's the Justin Bieber version. Um, there's been a lot of controversy behind that song in particular because Luis Fonsi uh, heard that, well, let's put it this way. Justin Bieber sort of treated that song like a side hustle project, like just like a whimsical sort of thing that he wanted to do. And never really learned the songs. We know what happened at the nightclubs. He started calling this Pasito Burrito and Doritos. So there was a lo- certain disrespect for the culture, the language, the artists, and the song itself in, in what it meant. Luis Fonsi has been very careful in not uh, giving any credit to Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber has never sang the song publicly, not on any TV show. He hasn't uh, done a televised version of the song with Luis Fonsi or Daddy Yankee. And, you know, with all this controversy, let's just say it wins. What do you think that would mean for Spanish language music moving forward? Would this mean that having Song of the Year for a Spanish language song at the Grammys and Luis Fonsi holding a Grammy for Song of the Year? That will pro- I think it's the, it'll be the only time in history that has ever happened does that say that we will all now support Spanish language music moving forward? Would this be? Would this mean uh, the Latino boom of Latin music, Spanish language music, in American in the American music industry? I mean, I think it's already happening. I think that the plethora of really hot songs that came out in 2017 that had uh, more than just a little Spanish flavor to it. You know, we're talking about uh, guys like J Balvin and Migente and um, you know, there was a whole bunch of great Latin music that came out this year. And I do think Despacito in that regard deserves the award. You know, as far as the whole Justin Bieber controversy goes, Louis Fonsi and Daddy Yankee have distanced themselves from his contribution of the song. Yeah. And, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news for people who are saying the Latin version should be nominated over the uh, the one with Justin Bieber attached to it, but the one with Justin Bieber, the remix, is the one that got played on radio stations yep. in North America. That was the one that went to number one on Billboard. That was the one that broke the streaming record. So they are going to honor that version of the song. You know, in terms of its impact on Spanish music, we've had sort of Latino and Latina 
top 40 superstars before. Yeah, Camila Cabello this year, Cardi B, who's Dominican as well with Bodak Yellow. She has the Latin trap version of that in Spanish. I mean, we, we, oh, we, sure. we, we've definitely seen that. And I just happen to think that, I don't know, man. You know, I, I've been in this place before where we have a song that shoot like Enrique Iglesias when he had Hero, he had the Spanish version. And, you know, we had that Latin explosion happen. And then it kind of just died out. And so I'm afraid that that might happen. But moving forward, uh, let's talk a little bit about the best rap performance because I know this is your area of expertise. Uh, the nominees are Big Sean with Bounce Back, Cardi B, Bodak Yellow, Jay-Z, 444, Kendrick Lamar and Humble, and then Migos featuring Lil Uzi Vert with Bad and Bougie. Who, who wins this one? This is a hard one to pick out. It's a tough category. I think that, you know, a lot of artists sort of raise their games this year, you know, Migos and Cardi B, uh, that's their first introduction to what I would call a mainstream audience. And, you know, Kendrick Lamar was a known commodity, but he went a little more commercial with the album Damn in 2017 and Humble, you know, is a direct result of that being so popular. If I had to pick between those, to me, uh, you know, I, I see Humble as the leader by maybe a fraction. Um, just because of how much of an impact it made just as a crossover single. You know, it wasn't just popular in... Um, in its genre, setting, right. In, in rap settings. You know, anytime a song can go from uh, a very, you know, closed-off subgenre of music almost, because, you know, rap and hip-hop music like to sort of build these walls around their genre, and crossover songs that do get out sometimes are accused of being quote-unquote sellouts. I don't think that's the case with Kendrick, and I don't think that's the case with Humble. But that being said, keep an eye on Cardi B and Bodak Yellow. That was a song that came out of nowhere. And I was just going to say that. Now, oh, yeah. I mean, she's proven now with the remix uh, to the Bruno Mars song, Finesse, that is super hot on the charts as we record this, uh, this pod. And, you know... She's not going to be a one-hit wonder. She's going to be around for a little while yet, so that could be sort of her starting moment in the, terms of granny recognition. The, the Cardi B phenomenon is is something that I just can't even grasp. You know, um, she's Dominican, uh, but has that sort of you know black culture uh, in her because she's from the South Bronx. So it's hard not to be influenced by black culture, but this is a song that Janet Jackson on tour started singing. She started covering the song in her tour. And then I just saw the other day that Jennifer Lopez did the same thing. So if the impact on a song with major heavyweight iconic artists and that song is being covered by them on tour and not necessarily humbled by Kendrick Lamar and you were just talking about how a song, if it crosses over into other settings, then that is the power of the song. How is it that Bodak Yellow isn't the lock? In this category? Well, I think it has to do with a lot of people's sort of precious idea of what the best rap performance uh. is. And, you know, we can get into a whole long discussion, and right. I have a classic <laughs> hip-hop podcast, right? So now we're getting into yeah. the thing of what hip-hop is supposed to be and what it really is to a lot of people in the real world. I don't disagree with you, but, you know, that whole sort of hard image of rap and hip-hop that, you know, people are trying to shed these days and we, you mentioned the logics of 1-800 single. That's a perfect example of that. But, you know, there are a lot of people who thought that Cardi B's track was kind of trashy, kind of generic, kind of just going for the big paycheck. 
And she has since admitted that there's nothing wrong with that. And I agree with her, but you know, I think also it's, it's, it's important for people not to get swept up too, too much in the Cardi B phenomenon and focus on the actual Interesting. songs. Wow. Okay. You know? Interesting. So speaking so, of that, the best rap song, Bodak Yellow, Cardi B, Chase Me, Humble. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Chase Me. Then you got Humble by Kendrick Lamar, Sassy, and the story of OJ. Who wins here? Oh, man. I mean, so performance is typically sort of you know, more of an all-encompassing thing. It's, you know, because Humble had a great music video and it's just, it's this really galvanizing piece of music. I think Humble could take this one as well. Although if the story of OJ wins record of the year over something like Despacito or the Bruno Mars track, you know, that goes for rap song too. You cannot give it record of the year and then not give it rap song. You feel me? I totally, totally hear you. I, I think a lot of these genre songs and albums or whatever will sort of be predicated on what happens with the bigger awards at the Grammys. And I know this is typically done in reverse and they save the bigger awards for last, but um, there, there will be a trend there. It's a really close category to call. Again, Bodak Yellow shouldn't be counted out. So I think that Humble, the story of OJ and Bodak Yellow are your three front runners. I think potentially Kendrick might have a slight leg up on both Cardi B and Jay-Z, but you never know. I mean, if you... We're saying there are so many ways this could go. It's going to make the Grammys interesting. Absolutely. And I happen to think that that the the album and the song Humble, I, I think it's this year's Lemonade. You know, it's the most artistic and, and, and the most progressive uh, evidence of hit, of the evolution of hip hop, you know, and where it could go. Um, it it's it's not the hip hop that I grew up with. You know, I grew up with Public Enemy and I grew up with uh, De La Soul. And, and it, was a, it was just a different type of hip hop. So for me to listen to this, I'm always looking for like the hook, you know, like that melody hook, that that hip hop beat, and and Kendrick Lamar just kind of smashes all the conventions, you know, of what hip hop music is, yeah. and so for artistic reasons, and if the Grammy is a prestige award show, sort of awarding art, that to me pr- would probably be it. Um, then finally, in the last category, I wanted to talk to you about is best rap album. I think it's important to understand that. You know, this is a collection of music. And I remember I go back all the way to the Frank Sinatra era, the Capitol Records, when he created the first concept album. And in that concept album, every song kind of went with each other. It synced together. It kind of told the story. Rap albums today, I feel, are sort of also telling a story, right? From from beginning to end. So it's important to kind of just take the sum of all the songs together in an album and kind of uh, evaluated from that point of view. The nominees are here. Jay-Z's 444. Kendrick Lamar's Damn. Migos with Culture. Rhapsody, Lila's Wisdom. And then finally, Tyler the Creator, Flower Boy, who just recently came out and said that he should be winning the rap album. And he went on boasting about why, you know, the reasons. But if you look at this nominees, is this an easy one with Kendrick Lamar or Jay-Z or does Rhapsody, Migos, and Tyler the Creator have an edge here? It is an easy one based on what the vote's going to be. It's going to come down to Humble and 444. And I suppose it's a coin flip based on which one you thought was the better record. I think, like I said before, with, with Album of the Year, I think Jay-Z's got a better chance of winning the Album Awards because of 444's strength as a sum of its parts uh, over his singles. Damn can't be counted out either. You know, Tyler boasting about how he should win for Fireboy is just Tyler being Tyler. <laughs> I also really like uh, Layla's Wisdom from Rhapsody. I think she's a great 
female artist who, you know, is, is presenting herself as maybe sort of like an antithesis to a Cardi B, right? There's no talk about uh, bloody shoes and all of this sort of stripper iconography, if you want. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very grounded, very soulful, very emotionally sensitive album, I think. So that would almost be like a creative dark horse for me. Do I think it's all that possible? Not really. Uh, if you put a gun to my head for a pick, it's probably 444, but Dan is not that far behind. Wow, man. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for being on the podcast and kind of giving us your insights, you know, and your acumen here on hip hop music because it's so heavy on hip hop this uh, this particular year, which is great for the genre and for the industry. But before I let you go, I, I really want to ask you about where do you think hip hop is today and where it's headed? It's a pretty loaded question. We could sit here and again make a whole podcast just answering that one Query, I'll give you sort of the nutshell answer, though. I think it's different. A lot of people want to, again, you know, hip-hop is such a contentious genre of music when people are comparing history and talking about the greatest of all time and who had the best uh, bar in this year and who had the best album. And, you know, a lot of people are uh, older heads, I, I would say, potentially dis- openly disrespecting the younger generation that's, that's coming up and right. saying... You know, they haven't got the goods and the younger generation's giving it back at them. And, you know, it's not even just the rappers. I mean, Lonzo Ball famously said that Nas isn't real rap. And Nas has maybe the greatest album of all time in Elmatic. And I mean, that's a, a subject that's been debated for a long time. So just like the rest of the U.S., I think that hip-hop is a pretty divided music genre right now. But I do think that, you know, there's a lot of great music coming out. And I think that with the evolution of streaming, with the evolution of how people are consuming music on the internet, there is so much more opportunity for artists to get their name out there and to have their own Despacito or their own Bodak Yellow. So, you know, I'm actually really excited for what the future of rap and hip-hop holds. Matt Fish, hip-hop connoisseur and guru. (laughs) Thank you very much for being on the Highly Relevant Podcast. Go check out his podcast. It's called Hip-Hop Classics, and hopefully... From this conversation, man, maybe you can uh, do a podcast on sort of uh, redefining the lines of what hip hop music is. I'd love to hear your take in maybe in an hour session of of of, uh, of where you think that all this is headed to. Absolutely, Jack. Hopefully we can we can get that down soon. And that's it for episode 63 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Brooks Barnes of the New York Times, Wilson Morales of BlackFilm.com, and Matt Fish from the Hip Hop Classics Podcast. And thank you guys for listening from your favorite streaming platform, wherever you may be. I'd love to hear from you. If you can, leave me a review on our show's iTunes page, or you can help us share it on your social media apps, tell your friends all about it. If you can, have them subscribe to the show. Hope you enjoy your weekend, watch the Grammys, and stay connected with us via showbizcafe.com. Enjoy your weekend, guys, and see you next week on another episode of... Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.